2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. We'll start at verse 16. And if you don't have a Bible, just look on with the person next to you. And we do have Bibles that we, if you don't have one, you can take, take one home. Just ask me or Pastor Kyle or Ron. We'll give you one for free. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose hearts. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Verse 18, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seeing or seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Heavenly Father, we just ask you to bless this word, God, that you would speak to us in the inner man. Lord, build us up today. We thank you again for our time with our families at Thanksgiving. And bless this word in the month of December before us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Our theme this month, and actually I'm starting it early, um, because this afternoon I fly to Istanbul, Turkey, to do a conference, a leadership conference with uh, many of our greater grace people in the Middle East. And um, for those that don't know us so well, we have about 600 greater grace churches worldwide, and we really have a great leadership discipleship program. And um, this week we'll be meeting in Istanbul, Turkey, and you've probably seen the news on the news. Turkey is quite on the forefront with everything that's going with going on with Russia and Syria. Uh, be praying for me as I travel. Um, there have been some demonstrations in Istanbul, and it's just really been quite an eventful time. But we are going to be having that conference, and at that conference, uh, we'll be having uh, Turks that have gotten saved, Syrians. Uh, Kurds, Iranians, uh, Arabs, people that have received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, and some of them have gone on to become leaders and pastors. So we're going to go and do that uh, with our head pastor, Pastor Schaller in Baltimore, and uh, we'll be there this week. And then after that, I'm going to be gone only about a little over a week. Uh, After that, I go to Central Asia to Baku, Azerbaijan, which is just a few miles north of Iran, and uh, be doing another conference there, which is another Middle Middle Eastern conference. Uh, Then uh, right after that, I go to Ukraine for three days uh, in Kiev, another country that's really just seen some war. So uh, these are really interesting times that we're living in, isn't it? We are living in times where we cannot live in fear. And we cannot um, derive from the news and the media our worldview. Our worldview really has to come from the Bible. As a matter of fact, and I wish I had the time to do it today, but uh, the Bible has more information about what's happening today, November 2015, than the news. It's more current than what's happening. Uh, There's some really cool verses about Syria and what Syria is doing today in the Bible. And so in January, we're going to start a series on the book of Daniel, which will be a discussion of the last day's events, what's happening in the last days. And uh, I've done a lot of studying the last eight weeks, a lot of reading, a lot of digesting truth. And there's some fascinating stuff about the last days, stuff that you have not heard. I'm, 
I'm sure. Well, if you have, then that's awesome. But some things that um, are really awesome, very exciting. We do not teach newspaper eschatology here, which means eschatology, which is the study of the last day's events. We don't develop our last day's eschatology based on what's happening in the news. Uh, we're not using current events to create new doctrines and to twist verses from the Bible to fit an exciting, sensational, week-by-week um, evolution of current events. Uh, we talk about something that was written 2,000 years ago that is being fulfilled today. And so I'm very excited about that. It's the month of January. December, we're just going to be talking about the peace of God that rules our hearts and minds. The peace of God. We, Pastor Kyle and I were talking and praying about this topic, and we just decided to come to this conclusion because December, I don't know about you, it can be a stressful month, can it? <laughs> How many were out on Black Friday shopping? <laughs> you were? Wow, that's amazing. Did you get up at like 4 o'clock in the morning to get the deals? I've never done that because I'm not such a good, I'm not in such a good mood at four o'clock in the morning, so I don't think people are really going to want to meet me at four a.m. at the store. Uh, I did go out a little later on in the day, and I did find some amazing deals. Uh, briefly, uh, but there's there can be, as we heard Pastor Kyle talk about, a lot of pressure and stress, and from the Thanksgiving Day until New Year's Day, there is just this real condensed time period where people can get really uh, stressed out. And, uh, and it's unnecessary. It really isn't God's will. I saw on the news last night in a mall, it was probably 4.30 in the morning, 5 o'clock in the morning, a, a, a fight break out uh, at the Black Friday sale. I thought, wow, you know, gr- Merry Christmas. <laughs> you know, it's like, Let's beat the tar out of people, you know. That's really the Christmas spirit. And, uh, and so this is really not the heart of God, is it? But I think the devil really wants to rob you and I of the blessing that God has for you this Christmas. God has a blessing for you this Christmas. He really wants to work something awesome into our lives. And so I want to just briefly speak this morning about the peace of God and how it guards our hearts and minds and so if you follow with me on the screen, we've been doing this lately, and uh, this helps, helps us follow the, the train of thought and the message. And so I, when we start with this, um, with this verse, it really gives us perspective. And this is really what we need these days when we are living under times of stress. We need perspective. And that perspective is in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, that our light affliction... And we call it light affliction because compared to other things which is more glorious and more eternal, those things that we don't see, this is just light affliction. It's only for a moment. When we get to heaven, we're going to look at our lives and we're just going to say, wow, it was only a moment of time. And it's far more exceeding and eternal and weight in glory. And you know, the truth is, is that you and I were not made for the mountaintop life. We were not made for uh, the sunrises and the other beautiful attractions in life. Those are simply intended to be moments of inspiration. God allows us these times when we are on the mountaintops for times of inspiration. And we can turn down the heat a little bit if it, needs, if it gets a little too warm in here. These are times that are simply intended to be moments of inspiration. God allows us to have these times when we are 
on the mountain, but we were not made to live on the mountain. If you've ever done any mountain climbing, you don't see a lot of vegetation and crops growing on the mountaintop. You don't see it a place, the mountaintop, to be a place of lush prosperity, but it can be quite rocky and barren. And so really what we've been made for is we've been made to live in the valley. And the valley really represents the ordinary, uh, mundane things of life. And this is where we see God prove his stanima and his strength. The valleys. Do you remember when Jesus was with his disciples at the Mount of Transfiguration? That amazing, glorious moment. And then Jesus said, we must descend into the valley. And in the valley, they met a man that was filled with demons. And it was quite a dramatic event and not very pleasant God has those moments for for us on the mountaintops, but most of our life is really going to be spent in the ordinary valley life. And this valley is where God wants to prove his strength and his power. Yet sometimes we can be spiritually selfish and want to live with repeated mountaintop experiences. We feel that if we could live and if we could talk and enjoy our mountain life experience, that would be the perfect situation. We would be perfect. We'd be truly spiritual people if we could just stay on the mountain and just stay away from people. (laughs) I like this quote by Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown said, I love humanity. It's just people I can't stand. (laughs) That's really the case, isn't it? That that we really have quite the religion, don't we? We want to embrace all of humanity, but, you know... We're secretly murdering our neighbor every day because of the way they leave their trash on the street or something. And so God has made us for valleys. God has made us for this place to excel in the valley. And you know, the valley is not such a bad place. It's very plush and very, very beautiful. Because we can see God's, God's faithfulness there. So we are inclined to think, and this is important, that when we look at our life and look at the experiences that we're facing, we're inclined to think that everything that happens to us is to be used to turn, to be turned into some useful teaching. And it sounds good, but it really is not the point of what God has for our life. Everything in our life is not used to be turned to useful teaching, but rather it is to be used for something that can be turned into something that is better than teaching, but namely character. God wants to work character into our life. God wants to work that stanima that we can only get in the valley. And so there's a few things I want to mention this morning, and it may actually be a little bit, it may be a little bit tough for us to swallow this, and this is not a popular message especially in our American society. If you've traveled the world a little bit, you find that in the United States, we have an amazing country, a very blessed country, and it's such an awesome place to live. But we also have a very powerful emphasis on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And this is actually something that we claim as a human right as an American citizen. And what can happen sometimes is is that we forget that the basis of life, when we look at the world today and we look at the inequality, and you hear about it on the liberal news all the time, the inequality of wealth and opportunity, 
When we look at the world, most of the world is living on $20 or less a month. There's a large portion of the world today that is suffering. There are people that are dying constantly every day. We do not look at a world that is uh, five or 6,000 years old that has, uh, that has arrived to this uh, utopia that mankind has um, hoped for and um, targeted throughout his, his political history. But now we are, we are in a time where we are living with almost 7 billion people on the planet and we are still in a lot of trouble. What is the problem? The problem is, and this relates to peace, um, what is the problem? Well, the basis of our life is not blessings. Let me just, just hang in there with me for a minute. Don't, don't get confused. The basis of human life is not blessing and prosperity, but in reality, the basis of much of our lives, and that doesn't have to be this way as a Christian, but life in general is tragedy. Uh, sin has made a gap between God and the human race. This gap is the valley that we live in between the mountaintop experiences. And consequently, when we try to explain our lives on the line of logic or region, we, re, reason, we find these idealistic ideas don't really work out that way because we live in an imperfect world. Let me explain. We as Christians need to be careful that we don't become idealistic in our religion, in our philosophy, stating that life is always a mountaintop experience as a Christian. Uh, because we live in an imperfect world and because sin has created a gap between mankind and God, we find ourselves many times living in a world, a world system that is that gap, that valley, uh, that chasm between man and God. And many times when we look at our life, things are not, life is not reasonable. Life is not logical. Life is not something that's predictable. Actually, life can actually be very illogical, very unreasonable, very unpredictable, and very tragic. As a matter of fact, the human body, the human being has been made with a greater capacity for pain than for blessing. We have been made as human beings by God with a greater capacity for pain than we have for a capacity for blessing. What does that mean? Well, God has done this because, think of it, remember the teaching that we had on the angelic conflict a few weeks ago, how angels were created in a perfect state? with free will and they had that they had that opportunity to make decisions they were created in a perfect state but they chose against god human beings adam and eve we were created in a needy state we needed to eat we needed to sleep we needed love this was adam and eve before they fell they were created in a state that was needy and limited and why did God do this? Because the first experiment, or we should say the first trial run of creation, created angelic, beautiful, perfect beings that chose against God. God goes to plan B. God goes to plan B where now I want to create frail human beings that are needy, that will give more glory to me because of their trust in me and my grace. 
than perfect angelic beings. You and I were created by God in all of our needs and all of our limitations to give maximum glory to God by trusting in him. And this is really what we find today in a very imperfect world. I don't want to get too much into philosophy, but we find ourselves living in a fallen creation. We ourselves are fallen. And when you are married, you've really quickly learned that when two fallen personalities get married and are connected and become one, then we really need a lot of grace for each other and a lot of patience and a lot of time. For us to try to be religiously idealistic that when you get saved, everything is amazing, hunky door, it's awesome. And there it is. It, it, there's an amazing, uh, there are amazing things happen that when we get saved. But in my case, when my dad got saved, I was just a, a young kid. Um, we were, my dad was a successful uh, man in the sales world. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. We just had the, the typical American life. But when my dad got saved, all hell broke loose. My dad lost his job. Uh, things started going wrong. Finances got really bad. We had to sell our home. We had to move into a little smaller place. Things got worse and more and more difficult. Why? Because God is working something deeper into our life than the typical idealistic blessing philosophy that we can hear in many churches today because people live on the surface god is not living on the surface god is living and wants to communicate to us on a much deeper spiritual level and that is why this is how we do, this is how we define the purpose of tragedies when we go through di- disasters such as what we see happening because of war People are more prepared at that point to look at God and to go into the word to discover its point of view. And thus we see more of the gap. Listen to this. Jesus Christ stands outside the usual grind of our lives. Now I'm just going to ask you to think with me as I'm speaking here. Jesus stands outside of the usual grind of our lives because he deals with fundamental deep spiritual issues of life. We do not. We deal with external things, external actuals, which are very often idealistic and theoretic. You understand what I'm saying? We, as people living in a fallen world, frustrated at the state of things, really want to project idealistic state. For example, Facebook. I think on everybody's Facebook, we want to present, we want to portray to everyone on Facebook that life is amazing. We're happy. We're excited. Look at our family pictures. Look what's going on. Our smiles and likes and, you know, everything's awesome and great. And then because we as fallen human beings want to project an idealistic situation in our life. Are you following me? Are you following me? We are idealistic. Why? Because we can't, we can't um, reasonably, logically put an imperfect world together with our sense of perfection. And we feel like we are in some way disconnected. And this is called frustration. Frustration is what I want and where I'm at. Um, frustration, we call it the frustration index. It means it, frustration index is when I'm looking at my little self and I'm looking at my little self and then I'm looking at what I want to be. You know, my great dreams, my desires and my goals and uh, what I think I should be. And this is what we call 
um, some people called it a guiding fiction, or basically um, in their mind when they were growing up, they had this character in their mind, like Superman or Barbie or some. It's like they're guiding fiction. It's like a fictional account of their story life that they want to be living, and this is their role model. And they're looking, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, or, you know, back in the day, Charles Atlas. I don't know if I've just dated myself. <laughs> Charles Atlas. I want to be like Charles Atlas, you know, the skinny guy on the beach. You know, everybody getting picked on by all the other big guys. And then he goes out and works out, and he gets really big, and then he beats everybody up. Charles Atlas. I want to be like Charles Atlas, you know. <laughs> guiding fiction. That's what I want to be. But my guiding fiction, my imaginary role model is not possible because I'm a human being and I'm not perfect. And so that causes what? Frustration, bitterness, uh, sadness. And then we fall, in, we fall off the wagon. You know, we just fall into some kind of sublimation or addiction. Why? Because there's a gap there. We don't know how to get from who I am today and where I want to be, uh, what, I, what, I, what, what the Bible says that I am, and then what my experience. There can be a gap there. And so many times, Jesus is standing outside looking at us. Jesus is saying, um, you're just occupied with the externals. You're occupied with the way you come across to people. You're occupied with uh, what you're posting on, on, on social media about what you want people to think you are. Um, one person wrote, somewhere on social media, I pray that I would be the person that everybody thinks that I am on social media. You know, that's quite a statement. Okay? And so, it's only when these external actuals, or it's only when our external situation or external life goes through some devastation of sorrow or tragedy that we begin to find that there's only one reality. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ who steps over the gap and through the walls to our upper room and comes in and he says, peace unto you. Remember when the disciples were uh, right after the crucifixion of Christ? And they all had, it wasn't just Peter that denied Christ, all of them denied Christ and fled. You know, they all fled. And, th- and that, that would be quite a hard principle to... Um, reconcile with those people that say that if you deny Jesus Christ that you're going to go to hell. Uh, Jesus' disciples, his star men, his, the future of the church movement, the book of Acts, the apostles that are going to be writing the books of the New Testament that we base our foundational doctrine on, they fled. <laughs> Sinners saved by grace. And Jesus comes through the wall. And what's the first thing he says to them? And this is one of my favorite uh, things to meditate about. He says, what does he say to them? You guys disappointed me. <laughs> you guys are losers. What happened to you? I, three years, sweat and blood, I taught you and was with you. And we walked and we talked. And, and, and then when it came right down to it, you left. Jesus understood that. What does Jesus say? He says, peace be unto you. It's It's good. We're okay because your sin, your failures have been paid for at the cross. And Jesus breaks through the walls and he begins to bridge the gap. How does he do that? Well, 
this is really important that that we that we look at this about bridging the gap. Now, sometimes our our concepts of faith is just blind submission, and I want to just talk about this for a moment. It's dangerous to be a Christian that's only occupied with submission to God's power. Let me explain what I mean by that. And I, again, I, this, is, this is kind of a thinking message. Because fatalism is a teaching that we can be guilty of when we only believe in submission to God's mighty power. Because if that is our concept of bridging the gap between us and God to find that peace, then we become fate, we become guilty of fatalism and we neglect faith in a relationship with God. Mm. Fatalism is what Islam teaches. You know, inshallah, they say in, in Arabic. They say, if God wills. I was, I was in Central Asia a few years ago and um, on a road where many, many people die. Uh, even some of our own missionaries died on that road. And I was taking a taxi from Bishkek to, um, um, down to uh, Amaate. And Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan, up to Kyrgyz, uh, Kazakhstan, Amaate, Kazakhstan. And it's Muslim. It's just a Muslim country. And um, uh, they have this Asian look um, because of the Tatars and the Asian influence, the Mongols. And so I'm in this taxi that someone had gotten for me. It's just an old Audi just, you know, probably from the late 80s, early 90s. And it had jacked, it was jacked up with its, you know, shocks were jacked up. Because the road is very wide, very straight, but it's not, it wasn't paved. So we're flying along doing 80, 90 miles an hour. And uh, you know, every half hour, this guy stops. He gets out of his car, he puts his little little hat on, and he says his prayers. And he gets back in and he starts driving like a maniac. And I said, I said to him in Russian, because they only speak Russian. I mean, they, they speak uh, Kazakh and Kyrgyz, but they also speak Russian because it's a post-Soviet uh, country. And I said to him, um, I said, please slow down. Uh, we don't want to die today. And I was trying to, be, trying to be nice to him. And, and he said, well, inshallah, if, God's wills, if God wills that we die, we can drive 40 miles an hour and we're going to die. And I said to him, it's not God's will that we die today. And that was such a brand new concept for him. He was like, what? Wait a minute. So we just started talking with him. I started talking with him, shared the gospel with him. In Islam, fatalism means, well, Islam means submission. And their concept of God is absolute blind submission with no questions asked. That is not Christianity. That could be what is sometimes taught in pulpits across the world. But that is not Christianity. Christianity is not blind relationship to a fatalistic God. Fatalism means my number's up. I have to bow to the power whether I like it or not. Okay? It is greater than I and I must submit. You ever hear that message? The submission of faith is that I do know the character of the power. Our faith as a Christian that brings peace into our life in troubled times means that I do know the God, the power. And this was really the line that Job took as, um, as a man who was in the middle of great trial. You know, the book of Job is so interesting because it's one of the first books that was probably written 
some commentators teach that uh, it's not historically the time on the timeline of the first books of the Bible. It's not like Genesis, of course, talks about the beginning of time, time beginning of history. Job was probably one of the first books that were written in, uh, in the Bible. And really, what is the book of Job? It's about suffering. Now, when you look at a book about suffering, and when you look at a book about difficult times, when you look at a book about trouble, you don't see a book that's didactic in teaching. It's not a, it's not a teaching book, right? It's not a book like, okay, don't do this, do this, know this, go this, do this principle, apply this. It's just a story. Because when people are, when people are suffering, and when we are in a very difficult situation, our capacity for didactic teaching is is we don't have it we need an example we need a role model we need a story to be told and this is really the story of job job looks at what's happening in his life and we said this before and i love this job has all of these things happening we as the reader in the first couple chapters of the book of job understand that god is allowing the devil to do this but does god tell job this does God tell Job this? God does not tell Job what's going on. And we don't even see at the end of the book that God tells Job what's going on. So Job never gets the answers to what's going on. God never tells Job why. And then we see Job die with no answers. But we do see Job ask a lot of questions. And then he says this. He says, though he slay me, though God kills me, Yet will I trust the fact that his character is worthy. And this is what that verse says. The adi- this is the attitude of faith that we have. Meaning, I submit to Jesus Christ, the one whose character I know, but whose ways are obscured maybe today in mystery. And I just don't know now. I know his character and I'm going to trust him, although... I don't know all the answers today. I don't know when my rent's coming in. I don't know if my health is going to get better. I don't know if God's going to answer this prayer in my lifetime. I don't know if this is going to happen or that's going to happen. And somebody may say, well, you just lack faith. But faith is never the issue. The amount of faith that we have is not the issue. The issue is the completed work of Jesus Christ through the word of God. Because we as individuals have no faith in us outside of what the Word of God says. We can't drum up anything. We can build up a lot of emotion. We can build up a lot of soul power. We can read inspirational things. But if it's not the Word of God, then it's not true faith being built up in us. And so I just um, want to make this point clear that we do know the character of God if we are Christians because we have, re- we have it revealed in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ revealed to us the character of God. Jesus said, He that has seen me hath seen the Father. Anything that contradicts the manifestation given and through the Lord Jesus Christ cannot be the true God. And I want to end the message here with three points. Question. And this is a question that people ask many times. And really, I was reading, um, and I want to suggest this author to you if you can get his stuff. Randy Alcorn uh, spoke to Campus Crusade for Christ in 2001, and he made a few comments, and I just was going over them and developed a few, a few principles and thoughts of my own from his material. Uh, he gives 10 or 12 reasons, and I give here just because of time three, 
But why does God allow evil and suffering? Why does God do that? Why does God allow the opposite to happen to me when I'm praying for a certain in a certain direction? Why does just the opposite happen? We hear the atheist and the agnostics say, um, there cannot be a God who is all good and all powerful because such a God would not allow evil and suffering as we see in this world. How could God be good and allow all of this to happen? One man by the name of Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote a book, which was a New York Times bestseller, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? And what he tried to do was, from a religious viewpoint, not necessarily spiritual, but a religious viewpoint, he tried to explain why do good things happen, uh, bad things happen to good people. And he concluded, this is what his conclusion was, he concluded that God is all good, but that he's not all powerful. And it's because, and what he said, it's too difficult even for God to keep cruelty and chaos from claiming innocent victims. We don't agree with that. That is just his, that is his viewpoint. And that's the best that the world can do. They look at the world, they see the evil in the world, they look at what the church is saying, that God is good all the time, and there's this huge gap. There's this breakdown between the two. And so I think there are three responses to this question, three main responses I'd like to give to you, and, uh, and then we'll close. Number one, the Bible itself raises this question. So we're talking about peace, and peace that passes understanding that guards our hearts and minds. And these are questions that the devil will try to throw at us to steal our peace. Because if the devil can't steal your salvation, and we don't teach that you can lose your salvation, if the devil can't steal your, your salvation, he's going to try to steal two things, your joy, and he's going to try to steal your peace. And we can't let him do that. And so the Bible itself raises this question. The Bible, men in the Bible say, um, like Habakkuk, Jeremiah, Job, and many of David's Psalms ask this question. Um, and it doesn't, the Bible doesn't back away from this question. That's why I love the Bible, because the Bible never backs away from difficult questions. And this is really the answer that I want to bring out from this first point. God doesn't condemn people for such asking such questions. We see Jeremiah in Jeremiah 12, verse 1, saying, You are always righteous, O Lord, when I bring a case before you, yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are the wicked prospering? And you know, the millennial generation, the, gener the generation that we call millennialists today, really are a generation that are very justice-oriented, I think. That's just my observation. They're very oriented. They're, that's part of their worldview, justice. And that's why you see such an outcry from millennials today about justice and the victim and how we can make that right. And we have to communicate to them that it's okay to ask these questions. I think the older generation, the generation of my father, which was a loyal generation, it was a military generation it wasn't okay to ask questions and if you ask them questions it's actually interpreted by them as hey you are rebelling and you're not just in some cases and i can't say this for everyone but in some cases there was a demand for blind submission which is not god's mind jeremiah asked the question 
David in his psalm said, Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Why are the heavens silent when I ask for help? Why do the good suffer? Why do the evil prosper? Anyone who tries to, and this is important, anyone that tries to gloss over or ignore this question in Christianity isn't spiritually honest. It's not spiritually honest. And it's a, it's a hard question that we should be prepared to answer. And anyone who tries to answer this question in some form of human justice outside of God's justice is, is always going to be an error. And so the first question is, is that, this, that the Bible doesn't back away from this question. And really, there are men of God in the Bible that ask this question. Number two, the Bible attributes the origin, and this is important to remember, the Bible attributes to the origin of human evil to people exercising their free will. When they chose to disobey God's standards, it brings suffering. God said, we know this in Genesis 2, 16 through 17, you may eat of the, tree, the fruit of every other tree, but... If you eat from this one, you will surely die. The Bible also says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. We are free to choose. We are free to choose, but there will be severe consequences if we choose to disobey. So the first man and woman chose that path, and when they did evil, death and suffering kicked in, causing all creation to fall and to fall into chaos. And so this is the second point, that God, uh, that human evil, that evil exists in the world today because God in his goodness and in his kindness and his compassion and his love gave man a volitional choice. God did not create clones that would just clone to do his will. God gave human beings and and. I know Pastor Kyle could probably give us some really great books on this subject if you wanted to really dig into it with his Moravia with his Moravia project. Check with him if you want to read more on this and dig into it. The third thing is things we consider, and this is a good one here. I like this one. Why does God allow evil? Why does God allow suffering in our life and in the lives of other people? And when we answer these questions, the peace of God is going to be something that's not easily shaken. Number three, the things we consider the greatest virtues to be, to be known in the world are virtues that are expressed in the face of evil. Things we consider the greatest virtues would not be known in a world without evil and suffering. Why does God allow evil and why does God allow suffering? Because there is something bigger than all of that that God wants to reveal. And God wants to reveal his great purpose. And his great purpose is to reveal his compassion. You know, how many of you have seen Schindler's List? I mean, I, I lived there. I lived in crack. I lived down the street from where that guy's uh, factory was. I saw Auschwitz. And in the midst of evil, human evil, you saw men like him doing this type of thing, showing God's compassion. Uh, here's another thing. Where would the amazing revelation of mercy be or heroism or courage or justice or sacrifice if there were if God does not allow evil Jesus who was the one who could have complained the most was betrayed he was he was kicked to the curb he was uh, detested and every good thing he did was rewarded with evil and he was eventually murdered 
And what did he reveal through all of that? Compassion, mercy, heroism, courage, and justice and sacrifice. So I just want to finish with this, that the great virtues that could be seen in a world without suffering and without evil, we would not see these things. God did rework all things together for good. And we love that verse, don't we? Romans 8, verse 28, that all things work together for good. And what we have to tell our wives, what we have to tell our husbands, what we have to tell our kids, what we have to tell our family members, and what we have to tell ourselves is that all things work together for good. But a lot of times we just stop quoting at that verse. There's a second part of that verse that we have to critically understand. Number one, that love him. When we, say, when we see the Bible say love God, it just means respond to God's love. For those that respond to God's love and that are called according to his purpose, this is going to work together for good in your life. This is going to work together for good. And I just want to encourage us today that, you know, when we face that stress and those things that are facing us that, that you know, that threaten to take our peace and our joy, just understand this, that, that this is going to work together for good in my life. And at the other side, I'm going to be saying, praise the Lord, look what God did. Give him the glory because that is really the purpose of God's plan. When we do that, we begin to go beyond just the externals of happiness and the uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in the, the American way. We go beyond that. We go be, transcend all of the racial things that are going on, the political things. We transcend all that and we, we get into a deeper relationship with God knowing his goodness and his purpose. Amen? Okay, let's just close.